Welcome back to church. It's like old times, isn't it? Having two services in one day. Um, brilliant. Um, thank you for coming. I hope you're sitting comfortably. <laughs> um, it's good to uh, be together. We're going to look at this question on the uh, screen behind me. You remember a recent members meeting, we talked about World Women's Day of Prayer, and I did offer out, um, if anyone wanted to have a, a brief talk, oh, sorry, a talk on the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Church. And uh, there were at least two nods. And that was enough um, to, to get going. So uh, I was assuming one person nods, five people are nodding inwardly. And there's probably ten people that are thinking, I should have nodded inwardly. So uh, I figured 15 people, but there's more, which is good. Um, so should we pray um, just as we start um, looking at this? Father God, we just really want to commit this evening to you. Father, our heart is for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Lord, our heart, um, through every decision we make, Lord, at least we try, is for the building of your kingdom, the building of your church, the health of your church. Father, sometimes uh, we get it wrong, sometimes we make mistakes, but Lord, I believe for the most part our heart is in the right place. And so, Father God, our heart is in the right place this evening as we tackle this sensitive question, this difficult question. So, Father God, I pray for a real spirit of grace in this room, a real spirit of grace in our hearts, and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we look at this question of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and the differences and the challenges to us as a church in the 21st century. So be with us now, I pray, and bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if my voice sounds croaky at all, um, it's because on Thursday I went to Wembley Stadium with Jack for his birthday to watch the Tottenham-Ghent game, which was a waste of my time, number one, and I did a lot of shouting for no real reason. So uh, <clears throat> if I sound a bit crackly, it's Tottenham Hotspur's fault, which will remain my position from now on. Anyway, so in 1517, let's just dive right in, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther pinned a protest document called the 95 Theses to the door of All Saints Church Wittenberg in Germany. This document was Martin Luther's objection to many practices of the church, particularly the sale of indulgences. Let's hope that works. There we are. I think that's a copy, not an original. Um, indulgences, if you're not sure what they are, were certificates that were sold by the church, bought with money that were said to make the purchaser absolved from their sin and punishment of their sin. So as Luther posted this and many other complaints in his document to that church door, famously, as many of you will know about it, he set in motion a chain of events that men like John Calvin and many others over quite a few period of years would continue and develop. This would be known as the Protestant Reformation, or simply the Reformation. Sadly, as was Luther's hope, the church was not reformed. Instead, Luther found himself excommunicated in 1523, no, 1521. As a result, over time, Protestantism grew and grew and grew. Uh, as a church, much of our tradition, our theological positioning and history is linked back to the events of that day and the events that followed of the Reformation. Things like the sole authority of Scripture. Hang on, there we are. I'm going to keep my finger here. The sole authority of Scripture, salvation by grace alone, are just two of the many effects of the Reformation and the getting back to the Scriptures um, in the way that Martin Luther was so convinced the church had to do. As an evangelical Protestant church, up until relatively recently, many people have understood, both within the church and within society, the very clear differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestant theology and differing church traditions. With the rise of the ecumenical movement in the 1800s and a decision taken at Vatican II in 1960, on the 1960s, by the Catholic Church to have a much broader relationship with those who were not Catholic. There have been a slow coming together first of Protestant denominations 
and then since the 60s with some sections of the Catholic Church. There we are. Over, in fact, over the last 50 years, successive archbishops of Canterbury and popes have attempted to bring together both the Catholic and the Protestant church and try to improve relations. If you want proof, there it is. Right up to the current archbishop and pope. <clears throat> As our culture has become less and less knowledgeable about the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestant theological positions, pressure now comes from those with faith and those without any faith for those of us who call ourselves churches to be unified right across the board. And we shouldn't be surprised that non-Christians and those outside the church are calling for a much broader sense of unity between anyone that calls themselves church or in all churches. Because as far as the average non-Christian can see, all the church seems to do is split and divide among seemingly minor issues over and over again. There are literally hundreds of different denominations and we shouldn't be surprised that there's a call for any under the banner of Christian church to be unified. Let me name just a few for you. Um, you can be a Catholic, a Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Grace Baptist, Southern Baptist, Lutheran, United Methodist Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, Presbyterian Church, the Vineyard, New Frontiers, Hillsong, the Mennonites, Greek Orthodox, the Church of England, the Episcopal Church, the Congregational Church, and the United Reformed Church. I could go on and on and on. As far as the world can see, we are all the same as each other and really ought just to get on and be one church. The Bible would appear to be in total agreement with that, um, that position. Uh, in John chapter 17, verse 21 to 23... Um, I'll read it like this, sorry. Um, Jesus said to, to his father, this is a very, the high priestly prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you uh, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so you get that uh, verse, seems to make that point, doesn't it? It seems to be that if you're a Roman Catholic or Orthodox or a Protestant, that actually we should all just be one church and there should just be a coming together. That would seem to be supported from the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. And so tonight I really simply just want to explain how the church has got to this seemingly fragmented position uh, and then go over where the Catholic church may stand on certain things and why and then look at what the implications will be for a church like us. So, question number one. <clears throat> How do we get to this point of apparent division and disunity in the church? Um, church history, this is my now attempt at explaining church history, church history is extremely complicated and extremely hard to just be really simple about. However, let me give you a simple <laughs> run-through of what's happened. Um, because the history of the church helps understand where we've got these big divisions from, why they've come and where they originated from. The church properly started in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on those early disciples. They were filled with the Spirit. They went out and preached the good news of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people were added to God's kingdom that day. Amazing things happened in the book of Acts and in the first um, couple of hundred years. And long before Rome felt it was the centre of Christianity, which it ended up feeling it was, there were four other major hubs 
of the global church. Along with Rome, you had Constantinople, you had Antioch, Alexandria, and of course, you had Jerusalem. Sadly, with the rise of Islam a few hundred years later, many of those early hubs of Christianity would be conquered and Christianity would be greatly reduced. By the the 6th century, Rome was pretty much the prominent center of our faith. And it's really sad because many of the Christians in the East and North Africa produced some amazing theologians who said and did some amazing things. And the church has been much weaker without them. And actually, it's much weaker in that we don't remember them. And so um, that's a big change. The biggest global change, in a sense, early on, happened when the Roman Empire emperor, uh, Constantine, converted to Christianity in 312 AD. He was a man that changed the face of Christianity all over the world. Uh, For example, the Edict of Milan in 313 AD uh, granted freedom of worship across the entire empire. He convened the Council of Nicaea, which dealt with many heresies that had been dogging the church for many years and allowed a clearer grasp of what we believe, something we're still thankful for today, thousands of years later. Constantine would later move the uh, capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, um, in 330 AD. He did this so that the capital of this now Christian empire would be free from many of the pagan idols and temples that were in Rome itself. And with this move, although the civil power of Rome would be weakened, its spiritual power would grow and grow, and the bishop of Rome, later would be called Pope, was now called Supreme Priest, a term used once for emperors only. And by the time of Constantine's death, Christianity was for all intents and purposes the state religion of the Roman Empire. Rome and its bishop then began to have a more prominent position in the global church. In fact, the very fact that in their history they could point to St. Paul having been held under house arrest for two years and it said was beheaded in Rome. Um, The fact that they believe, according to their tradition, that Peter himself went to Rome and was crucified upside down. You remember possibly the story of that. He didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified like Christ, so he was crucified upside down. And they believe that Peter went to Rome, and the Roman Catholic Church believes that he was the first pope, although there's no historical evidence for that at all. Um, But those two men in the city of Rome gave the Roman church, uh, the church in Rome, um, a sense of credibility that other churches and areas didn't have. And that would come to define their thinking in the later years. Emperor, let me try and pronounce his name correctly, Emperor Theodosius, anyone, any any, uh, advances on that? Oh, good. Brilliant. On the 27th of February, um, 380 AD, said of our faith that it is the religion which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter. He then referred to them as Roman Catholic Christians and then made Christianity the official religion of the empire. But just that changing thinking shows just how Rome was beginning to see itself. As the Roman Empire crumbled and struggled, the Roman Catholic Church Rose From 476, emperors began to claim a certain amount of power over the church in Rome, and they increased their authority um, by offering privileges to various bishops within the church. From the 3rd century, the church in Rome patterned its hierarchy with that after the Roman Empire, and soon the bishop of Rome began to establish himself as supreme leader over the global church. And by Gregory of 590, the church and state were fully intertwined with the Pope being very powerful, even over kings and emperors. 
Now, despite this, however, for the first 1,000 years of church history, there appeared at least outwardly to be church unity across the globe. There were different bits that splintered off, but for the most part, the church seemed to be just one. And then in 1054, something major happened, referred to as the Great Schism. I'm sure you all know it. Um, there we are, 11th century up there. Um, the Great Schism in 1054, um, between the remaining two hubs, Constantinople and Rome, there will be a division that carries on even today. Basically, the church, like the empire, was in two halves, east and west, and there had been much tension between the two sides for quite a long time, with the patriarch of the eastern side and the pope over in Rome coming to a, a real bust-up when the pope decided to add to the Nicene Creed something called the Filioque Clause. Um, okay, I, I'm sure some of you have heard of that. The Filioque Clause, we haven't got time to go into. But this one decision, um, although actually quite large, was a straw that broke the camel's back, and they excommunicated each other. So um, I'm not sure who went first, but I'm sure the other responded to the tit for tat, as they say. Um, my next slide is a semi-joke. If you've got Facebook, you'll find this mildly amusing. Um, not a lot happened after. Um, sorry, um, not a lot happened after that 1054 split. There were a few few little offshoots, but the church kind of held together, uh, east and west only. And then the real change was in the 16th century with the Reformation. It's important to note that Martin Luther did not want to break up the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it. However, he himself was excommunicated. And since then, the Protestant Church has divided into many different denominations, as we've just said. So coming back to the ecumenical movement, since the, since the mid-1800s, uh, the ecumenical movement has sought to bring the Protestant denominations back together and after the Vatican II Council of the Roman Catholic Church, this ecumenical movement now includes unity with the Roman Catholic Church. And many people cheer at this. They cheer at the prospect of global outward unity across any who go under the banner of Christian church. Others are not so sure. Um, so let's ask another question. Is the ecumenical movement right to aim for outward unity regardless of theological positions. I didn't say the questions would be easy and short. Um, but is it right, is the ecumenical movement right to try and bring the Roman Catholic, the Protestant Church, and everybody else together, regardless of those clear differences? I would say it is a qualified yes. Uh, a qualified yes. I believe that we must seek unity as Christians with anyone that follows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. However, our driving force must always be Gospel truth, biblical truth must be first. Unity must be second, not the other way around. That is the qualified part of the yes. Uh, Martin um, Spurgeon had a, a great quote, which is very long and I haven't got time to read it, but basically making that point that truth um, actually is what we're going for, truth above unity. Uh, these are some of the things that we might stand for in a church like us, that the Bible alone is our sole authority, that we are saved by faith alone, not by our works, that we're saved because of the grace of God. We're not saved because we've appeased God or, or anything else or pleased him even. We're saved from, um, for eternity because of the grace of God. We're saved through Christ alone. There is no other way of finding your salvation. And our salvation is ultimately for the glory of God. These are the things that a church like ours rests on. And so if someone comes along and says, oh yeah, um, it's not just faith alone. You can do this, this, and this and earn your salvation. We say, no, we can't be unified with you because you're taking the gospel truth and you're adding to it, and that's wrong. 
And so our truth trumps um, our uh, pursuit of unity. And actually, just with the person next to you, I've talked for a long time now, so it's time for you to talk, um, if you have anybody next to you. Um, just with the person next to you, just answer this question. Do you think there are any good reasons for churches to be divided? Um, what are the good reasons or the bad reasons for churches to separate from each other? And what are the good reasons for them to separate from each other? So are there good reasons to stay, stay separated and are there bad reasons? Just literally 30 seconds, just so that you can, you can stand up if you want to bring legs back to whatever. Just for literally two minutes. Okay, should we, uh, should we carry on? So you probably covered lots of things. Um, if it's all right with you, I won't ask you what you, what you thought, um, only because we'll be here all night. Um, so it seems to me that there are bad reasons for churches to remain separated from each other, but there are perhaps good reasons as well. Bad reasons for churches being divided and separated. Um, bad reasons would be ambition. So one church wants to be something uh, and known apart from another church. That would be ambition. Ambition would be wrong. The Bible speaks about that. Pride would be another terrible reason for churches to remain separate from each other. Minor doctrinal positions. Um, you look at things like the Church of England. The Church of England has lots of things that it does. Um, and as a church like ours, we may not go along with absolutely every practice they do, not because they're wrong in and of themselves. It's just their particular tradition has got them. So if things like robes, you're unlikely to see me wearing a robe and a cassock. Um, although maybe for charity, perhaps. Um, <laughs> Or some sort of dare. Anyway, um, but so, you, so we, wouldn't, but we wouldn't say we're not going to meet with the Church of England uh, and be unified with them because they have robes. Because it's such a minor thing, it's almost irrelevant in that sense. However, if they said that you can be saved with faith in Jesus and by doing lots of good works, we would say, well, or, or through faith in somebody else, we'd say that's a major difference and we can't be unified with you. So there are good reasons to be separated. Things like major doctrinal differences reasons of conscience and even practical reasons and so the real issue for tonight uh, about the protestant church and the roman catholic church is should be not being unified with each other in the way the world wants is that a good thing or a bad thing are there good reasons or bad reasons to answer that question we have to know what the roman catholic church believes and what it teaches Uh, So what does the Roman Catholic Church believe and why? Well, answering why is a little bit more tricky. Uh, Answering what is a lot easier. So I have a list of um, some of their sort of key beliefs. Um, Obviously, nothing's comprehensive in life. Um, But here are some of the things the Roman Catholic Church believes. Um, For example, the Pope and bishops rule the universal church. By universal church, they mean all of God's church across all of history. When we talk of the universal church, we don't mean every bit that you can see now, we mean all the church that's gone before and all that's to come. So they would say the Pope and the bishops rule all of God's church. But God has entrusted revelation to the bishops, particularly in including the Pope. They also believe that the Pope is infallible in his teaching, infallible in what he teaches. That scripture and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church together are the word of God. We use the phrase word of God a lot. Um, And so in the Roman Catholic understanding, the phrase word of God is the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church along with those infallible teachings of the Pope and the Bible together as one. 
We'll come on to that a bit later on. Um, they talk about the importance of Mary. We'll come on to, to her in a moment. Um, also, the initial justification is by means of baptism. Being a Christian is via your baptism. Um, salvation, uh, being saved, needs the sacraments, um, particular ritualistic practices that everybody must do as a Roman Catholic. Also, transubstantiation. That's not a, that's not a train station that you, you can get to on Great Anglia. Um, that's the belief that when they have communion, we have bread and wine. Um, they believe in the Roman Catholic Church that the bread and wine literally transform and become the blood and body of Jesus Christ. The Mass. Um, the Mass is a, a service that perpetuates the cross and the death of Jesus. Um, that The Mass appeases God's wrath. And I also believe that the Roman Catholic Church is the one legitimate church and heir of true New Testament Christianity with the Pope being in direct line of succession to St. Peter, who's considered to be the first bishop of Rome or Pope. And I'm not being uh, intentional. I've been to the Vatican, and they have a list of popes all the way back to Peter. So that is a core belief there. And just a, a few more. Um, I've said that. Worship or veneration of the saints who have died. And finally, a belief in purgatory. And what I want to just do really, well, say really quickly, relatively quickly, um, is just take you through a couple of those key beliefs and just try and sort of pick them apart a bit, if that's okay. The first is uh, the Roman Catholic belief in Mary um, and who she is. Not Mary Hooper, who's with us tonight. Um, although we think very highly of you, you're an amazing person. <laughs> but um, I don't think the Roman Catholic Church has got a position on who you are. Uh, but you never know. Hang in there. Anyway, um, <laughs> Sorry, it's too obvious to make a joke, isn't it? So um, all the quotes that are going to appear on the screen um, haven't come from Wikipedia, by the way, in case you're wondering. They've all come from a document written by um, Pope John Paul II, published on the 25th of January, 1985, called The Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, other points I'm going to make are coming from the Catholic Encyclopedia. So just in case you're wondering, I don't just sort of, I didn't go home and Google a talk and print it off. Um, so um, the Roman Catholic Church refers to Mary um, in some interesting ways. It refers to Mary as the mother of God and of the Redeemer. As mother of Jesus, Mary has been given a great position in Roman Catholic thinking, um, saying that she is clearly the mother uh, of, member, of the members of Christ. As mother of Jesus, um, us, as the Bible says, as his brothers and sisters, she is, in a sense, according to Roman Catholic theology, uh, the mother of all believers because of her position as mother of Christ. She's described as Mary, mother of Christ, mother of the church. The Catholic Church believes that Mary was taken up to heaven in bodily form, known as her assumption. She was assumed into heaven in bodily form. Alongside that, they teach um, that the conception of Jesus in her womb was immaculate, simply to mean that Mary was preserved, sorry, preserved free from all stain of original sin. The Bible teaches that each of us are born with a sin problem. This is why good people can never be good enough to get into a perfect heaven, because you're born with original sin. Christ has to wash you clean. You can't wash yourself clean by good works. You have an a inbred sin problem. And so Jesus has to wash you. That's why he died uh, for you on the cross, I'm sure, as you all know. Um, but they say that Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin, that she was immaculate, perfect. Um, so why do they think this? They think this basically 
um, because the idea being that a sinful human being cannot give birth to a sinless saviour. And I was at the Vatican last summer, and I overheard a tour guide making the very same point to her tour group, and she made the very same point that how can a sinful person give birth to a sinless saviour? She must have been perfect. And then she said the phrase, it makes sense doesn't it? Uh, they believe that when Mary was ascended, uh, assumed into heaven during her assumption, that she was exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. All these quotes come from the Catechism of the Catholic Church by John Paul II. As queen over Thank all you. things. And you may not have heard what Steve just said. He was saying that the, the idea of Mary being assumed into heaven is a relatively recent teaching, going back to the 1800s, so kind, kind, of, kind of recent, I guess. Um, but these things do change. But I think the view of Mary has always been um, very high uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. So, okay, thank you. That's helpful to know. Um, where are we? So the Queen of Heaven, um, Mother of... Uh, where are we? Lost my place now. Hang on. Yes, there we are. So she said, she's also said to have completely adhered to the Father's will and every prompting of the Holy Spirit and that she is a unique member of the Church and a model of faith. And it's said that now in Heaven... Um, she continues to bring us gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the blessed virgin, um, St. John Paul II writes, is invoked um, in the church under titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, or mediatrix, or mediator. They say that this doesn't take away from Christ being our mediator, but simply shows that she can intercede for us higher than any other saint who has died before because of her special relationship. Part of Catholic belief is that those who have died can be prayed to, and they can intercede to Jesus on our behalf. The Bible, however, doesn't view dead Christians like that at all. Um, and in fact, when it comes to the view of this high view of Mary, although she is called highly favoured by the archangel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and later in verse 42 of the same chapter, Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist's mum, does call her blessed and does call her mother of my Lord. However, the New Testament itself says absolutely nothing of the idea of her being assumed, um, or the idea of an immaculate conception. And in fact, in Luke chapter 22 onwards, uh, we read that after the birth of Jesus, Mary goes with her husband Joseph to the temple, and whilst there, in accordance with Old Testament law, Leviticus 12, 8, um, she has to offer a sacrifice for ritual uncleanliness. In Old Testament law, um, losing blood or any form of emission um, made you ceremonially unclean not a sinner, it made you ceremonially unclean which is a different thing which we haven't got time to go into however if she was perfect, if she was immaculate that sacrifice wouldn't be needed and also the rest of the New Testament and the Christmas story says nothing of Mary's role in the church other than it extends to being the way in which our saviour could take on flesh and whilst Hebrew speaks of us being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses it doesn't teach that those who have died can be prayed to or help us. Hebrews 4 makes it clear that Jesus alone is our great high priest and the only mediator of our faith. So that's um, about Mary. Um, I also mentioned there uh, baptism uh, and salvation. There we are. Uh, so the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, believes that salvation comes through faith, as we do, in Jesus' death and resurrection. But they also believe that that faith needs baptism afterwards. They believe that Jesus taught this, that faith and baptism are linked together. Uh, and they say that, it, that baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness. They believe that once a person believes the gospel message, they must be baptized. And that's how their sin is properly removed and they're justified before God. The Roman Catholic Church teaches 
that baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ who died for our sins and and rose for our justification. They believe that baptism is necessary for salvation for those who the gospel has been proclaimed. The church does not know any other means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. They also say justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted to us through baptism. So being saved isn't through faith alone. It's through faith and baptism together. It is not one with the other. It's one and the other together. As Christians, we take a very different view. We believe the Bible teaches that salvation is through faith faith alone in Christ Jesus and that baptism is an outward act signifying an inner change. So moving on to salvation. Um, However, as a person is baptised, they're reborn, but they can still sin, can't they? Uh, We all do things we shouldn't. And the Roman Catholic Church believes that salvation can be lost once it's gained through faith and baptism and that the church is the main vehicle for being forgiven of your sin. You do penance, you confess to a priest, and you're forgiven. They say this, in the forgiveness of sins, both priests and sacraments are instruments which our Lord Jesus Christ, the only author and liberal liberal giver of salvation, wills to use in order to efface our sins and give us the grace of justification. But you can't say that backwards three times. Um, There are seven sacraments, which we haven't got time to go into, but things like confirmation, Eucharist, uh, doing good to the poor, marriage, uh, and baptism, which are said to be essential for salvation. The seven sacraments are essential to salvation. And I won't read these two out because they're a bit long. But basically, at the Council of Trent in the 1500s, um, these seven sacraments were enshrined in Roman Catholic theology. And they basically have said there, if you read it behind me, if you don't do them, if you say they're not important, let you be anathema, as in accursed. And basically, the belief is that salvation is through faith, and then baptism, and then the sacraments. And if you, um, sorry, and basically once you're a Christian, you're in this thing at the bottom called state of grace. You're, you're saved, you're in the place of salvation, but however you can still sin. And, uh, but to get back to that place of being saved, you have to visit your priest and confess your sin. Um, you have to do penance, and you have to do some of these sacraments as well. And then you get back into that state of grace. It's sometimes called the cycle of grace, because a person will go round and round and round across their entire life. There are things called mortal sins uh, that if a person commits uh, they can just and, and die, they can go straight to hell. Um, purgatory is also a place where Roman Catholics teach there can be further forgiveness of sin before a person eventually, hopefully, gets to heaven. Therefore, the priest and sacraments of the, and the Roman Catholic Church are essential for salvation. And one of Luther's problems and one of the reasons for the Reformation was his discovery that the Bible doesn't teach that in the slightest. In fact, as he went through um, verses in Romans and other books, he discovered that our salvation isn't through works, it's through grace, it's through faith alone, not through anything else. And in fact, when you look at that picture, actually salvation isn't by grace, it's by works. Because you have to work your way back to your forgiveness. You have to go and be forgiven. You have to do your penance. You have to get back to that state of grace. Initially, it's by faith, but to remain saved, it's your work. So actually, salvation is by works, not grace in that model. And that was why Martin Luther 
uh, called, pulled away from the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Just a couple more, and then we're getting towards the end. Um, I mentioned transubstantiation. Um, Gavin thought it was a, a, a train station on East Anglia. Um, he already thought they were delayed. <laughs> um, but transubstantiation is that idea that the, the communion, bread and wine, become the body and blood of Jesus. And I think that what they point to is the, verses, the, the comments of Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus says, unless you eat the, um, if you drink my blood and eat my flesh, then you won't be saved. However, those verses aren't actually about communion. They're about another point Jesus is making. Um, and actually, a better understanding of the Passover would clearly show that transubstantiation isn't actually something that you can hold. Um, during a uh, Passover meal, there were four cups of red wine, and the red wine symbolized the lamb that was sacrificed as the uh, blood was put over the doorpost. And the Jewish people would have their Passover meal and have these four glasses of red wine. And each one had an important significance. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. And whoever would hold that cup up, that would be the blood of the lamb that was shed so they could be forgiven of their sin. And the cup was never said by Jews to be the blood of the actual lamb. It symbolized the blood of the lamb. So when Jesus holds that cup, that third cup, in the communion at the Passover meal with his disciples and says, drink, this is my blood, he's not actually saying this is literally my blood. He's saying just like it symbolizes a lamb that was slain for the Jews, I'm going to be slain for you. And then, yes. and then the Mass as well, finally. Um, the Mass is something that Roman Catholics believe is of central importance. It's not simply a Roman Catholic version of the Eucharist or the communion service that we have. Actually, it's a thoroughly important service to Roman Catholics. Um, and they say of it that it is the same sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered at the cross of Calvary. Uh, they believe because of the transubstantiated bread and wine that actually this is where they actually meet Jesus and they actually it's like his death on the cross. Uh, this is just a quote from what happens um, at it. It says, The priest then presents the transubstantiated elements to the congregation, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Then all repeat, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, and only say the word and my soul will be healed. The belief is that the Mass is almost like the death of Jesus. But Romans 9 and Romans, uh, Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 tell us that Christ died once and for all, and his death doesn't have to be perpetuated in any other way. So, so we're nearly there. I'm very conscious there's lots of talking. So you have a list of beliefs that the Roman Catholic hold to and consider to be important that are not based on the pages of the Bible. And so... Things like Mary and purgatory, place of works, the papal see, you can't trace back to the pages of the New Testament. The question is not what does the Roman Catholic t Church believe, but why? Where do these extra beliefs come from? And just as we finish, the answer really comes down to our view of the Bible. For a Protestant church, we believe in the sole authority of Scripture. For, uh, for Protestant Christians, this is at the top of everything we do. Not always, we get it wrong, we make mistakes. But by and large, the Protestant Church puts the Bible as our sole authority. And the Roman Catholic Church, along with the Bible, is the traditions and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. They are of equal authority. They are of equal authority. Not less, equal as a fact. And so when the Roman Catholic, when a Pope makes a decree, that is as authoritative as the pages 
of the word of God. Here we are. Um, they believe that the scriptures were authored by God. They believe they were dictated by the Holy Spirit. They believe they're inspired. But the main difference is that, that church tradition is the same as that. Whereas in a, a Protestant church, every generation has the opportunity to look over the words of the Bible and say, this church is getting it wrong here and here and here. In a Roman Catholic teaching, you haven't quite got the same liberty as Martin Luther found out. The Roman Catholic Church also believes that some doctrines that Christians ought to believe are only imperfectly revealed in the Bible or obscurely intimated or not there at all. So they teach that the so church teaching of the church supplements or complements the teaching of the Bible. The words of God are the scriptures and the traditions of the Catholic Church. Remember, the Pope is considered an infallible teacher, an infallible teacher, not a good one, infallible, the same as the Bible. For us in the Protestant Church, this is actually a huge, uh, a huge point. Um, as I've already said, our sole authority is the words of the Bible. Every generation can challenge every generation's take on the word of God. But this, coupled with that increasing belief that the Pope and the church in Rome was the direct heir of New Testament Christianity, has seen Rome produce practices that you cannot find in the pages of the Bible. So what are the implications for us as we finish? Almost a half a page. Um, what are the implications for us? For all of this puts the evangelical church in a very difficult position. We're called to love our neighbour and we are only too happy to reach out to all people, including those of our local Roman Catholic Church. And that should always continue. However, as far as I can see it, we cannot form any sort of formal relationship that would suggest to the wider community that the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church and that of the Protestant Church are equal. Except for style. We might say the Church of England and the Methodists and us are virtually the same except for style. But that argument cannot be used with the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. We're to take, um, but whilst we may love and have great affection for our Roman Catholic friends and even admire the sincerity of their faith, we cannot do anything that would say to a non Christian Roman Catholicism is the same as Pen uh, Protestantism. And whilst this position is deeply unpopular, and I suspect will become even more unpopular, we must be people whose concern is for the clarity of the gospel message that saves people's souls. That must trump affiliations and unity. We must be clear, I'm not suggesting that individual Catholics are not Christians. And if you go home and think I'm saying that tonight, you've not listened, because I'm not saying that in any way, shape or form. I'm not so arrogant as I were to suggest who is a part of God's kingdom and who isn't. That is neither, not my job, and it never will be. I'm also fully aware that many who say, Lord, Lord, even within our own church community, aren't necessarily followers of Jesus Christ. Because you can act the Christian without being a Christian. So we're not saying any of that. The truth is that many of the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church are very different to what's suggested in the word of God. So the rubber hits the road here. We must passionately seek the unity of the church across all nations, all cultures, all denominations, but we must only seek that unity where the integrity of the gospel message and the teachings of the Bible remain intact as our sole authority. And like all good bedtime stories, the end. <laughs>